Hello, everybody, and welcome to our 25th installment of the Phenotip Speaker Series. Um, this is quite a landmark installment here, so I'm very excited that we're going to be diving into population genomics in clinical practice today. I'm your host, Kira Deneen. Um, our panelists are Amazing. I'm, I'm, I've really been looking forward to this for weeks, I have to say. And what's very cool about our panelists is they each come from a different country. So we got the U.S. represented, the U.K. and Canada. So I think that's going to provide for a very interesting conversation just with how different healthcare systems are working within this context of population genomics and clinical practice. So thank you for everybody that is trickling in. Um, we really appreciate you taking time out of your day to be watching this live, or if you're listening to this later as a podcast. Um, so we really appreciate you just taking the time and energy to hear our conversations here. The way this is going to work today is I'm going to be interviewing our amazing panelists, but I want you guys to submit questions. So if you're watching this live, we would love to have you submit questions. We have the Q&A box there, so you can put questions directly in there. Don't wait till the end though. I will probably wait till the end to actually ask your questions to our guests, but I don't want you to think about it and then say, oh, I forgot what I was going to ask or got busy or, you know, doing something else while you're listening. Um, so please, as you have questions, pop them into the Q&A chat. I would love to be able to have, um, you know, our, our three doctors here answer those questions. So a little bit about Phenotips, who is the sponsor for this series. They've been sponsoring the series since 2020. And as I said, this is our 25th installment. Um, so we have 24 other awesome episodes, installments that you can go check out on demand. Um, that's at phenotips.com. So Phenotips, for those that don't know, is a complete genomic health record with searchable, shareable, structured and scalable database of patient records that are also linked to family records. So the Phenotips genomic health record includes tools like inclusive pedigree builders. We have a really, really good installment specifically about designing and, and making sure you're asking questions to be inclusive um, with pedigrees as you're getting that information. They also have the human phenotype ontology capture, digital patient questionnaires, built-in risk assessments, and diagnostic insights. So it really is this complete suite for genomic medicine. And a lot of us have experienced, I'm sure the four of us on this call here have experienced that electronic health records are not built for genetics. Usually there's a little section to it and it doesn't really flow in nicely. It's kind of an add-on. So that's why Phenotips really saw this need. They wanted to close that gap by providing this genomic health record and just providing that unified and seamless genomics workflow. Um, so it's really cool. Check it out if you haven't yet. And as I said, my name is Kira. Um, my pronouns are she, her. I'm your host for this webinar for people that have uh, are just joining in now. Um, I also am the host of DNA Today, which is a multi-word winning genetics podcast. We have produced over 250 episodes in the last 11 years, and they're very similar to conversations that we have on the Phenotype Speaker Series here. My other role is as a prenatal genetic counselor. So from a clinical perspective, that's where most of my experience comes from. But enough about me. I would love for our three guests here to introduce yourselves because people that are listening to this in the podcast format don't get that visual of who's talking. So I think it's helpful to hear whose voice is who at the beginning. Um, so Dr. Green, I would love for you to introduce yourself of um, what your title is and what your um, role is in the NIH. Sure, happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to spend some time chatting uh, with you and these wonderful other guests. 
So I'm Eric Green. I'm director of the National Human Genome Research Institute at the U.S.'s National Institutes of Health. So I've um, been at this institute now for 29 years. I've been the director for nearly 14 years. Um, my role, uh, we're one of the 27 institutes at NIH, but we're the ones responsible for leading human genomics. And so my role is to, to, to lead all aspects of what the institute does, uh, both with respect to our extramural program, which is our grant giving program that helps fund research in human genomics in the US and even abroad, but also we have an on-campus, what we call an intramural research program uh, that um, also uh, pursues human genomics, everything from very basic genomics to, to, to genomic medicine. Lovely. And Dr. Barwell, would you like to introduce yourself? You're coming from the UK. That's right. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to, to see you again. So I'm a clinical geneticist and my main area is familial cancer. So we see a lot of people who are affected with cancer or at risk, but we've also been moving more into personalized medicine. So we're thinking about how we can best treat people for mainly for cancer, but other conditions as well. And I've got an honorary professorship in genomic medicine here in Leicester, which is in the middle of the country. And what we're trying to do, apart from teach people the difference between genetics, personalized medicine and genomics, is create that vision whereby how do we inspire the next generation to think about screening not purely based on age think beyond 500 years of the microscope and actually give people the right drug first time at the right dose and and those are the sort of the the three pillars that we're trying to inspire and enable and empower the next generation to take on board and to bring together different data sets to make better risk predictions so thank you very much yeah, that is amazing. And Dr. Brinkman, you're coming from Canada. Yes, I am. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I um, have really had a long time uh, interest in sort of bringing data together and got interested as a uh, first a microbiologist and then increasingly in genomics, in uh, data integration and uh, started to build a uh, the child cohort study database here in Canada. This database is um, got about 57 million data points of incredibly diverse data on these children, including genomics data. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what it's allowing us to do is really identify these um, through the, the child and the parent trios. Uh, we're really able to identify the impact of, of um, genetics and uh, environmental exposures on health. And the goal is ultimately to be able to better understand these trajectories children have. They may start with a bad, a bad uh, deal in life, or they may have a better deal in life. But what we want to do is really improve those trajectories so they are all ending up getting the best start they can. Yeah, amazing. Well, I think that gives us a really great baseline to go off of to start our conversation of just where all of your expertise lies and kind of a teaser of the topics that we're going to dive into. As we are starting this conversation, I know it's kind of a silly question, but for those that are maybe newer to this concept, I think we should define what population genomics is and how we approach that study, how it's currently being applied in the clinical practice as well. And, and if you have thoughts on how it's changed 
you know, in recent years. I don't know if anyone has thoughts that uh, want to get us started. Kira, maybe we could also make sure everybody understands or we have a firm grasp on what the difference is between population genomics and maybe genomic medicine. Yes, because, I think that is yeah. beautiful. Dr. Green, do you want to answer that for us? Well, I, I will happily answer it, but I I will readily admit I'll give you my answer. And <laughs> yes, think, you know, we have some experts who think all three of us, I think you're going to find look at this all in a slightly different way. Um, I mean, genomic medicine, I'll let me start with. And I mean, genomic medicine to me is using genomic information about individual patients to uh, manage their medical care. Um, so I, I think probably we will mostly agree with something, some wording like that. You know, population genomics, which actually is just a, I think, a reinvented term from population genetics, which even the word genetics uh, is a much older word than genomics. You know, I think historically has had um, significant evolutionary um, and um, uh, connotations, but I think where our discussion is going to go for where I think you want to have us discuss is some of the diagnostic implications of population genomics. So to me, there is a Venn diagram, but I think there's a lot of aspects of population genomics that sit out, you know, that are more about evolutionary biology and human migrations and lots of things that have, have, have incredible, interesting topics. I suspect this conversation, you're going to want to focus us more on what are the implications of population genomics when it comes to diagnostics in the context of genomic medicine. That's exactly. my take. But I'm <laughs> yes. curious if my fellow panelists agree with what I just said, and I'm sure they could add to it. Yes. And feel free to disagree with each other. It always makes for an interesting uh, episode here. But Dr. Barwell, Dr. Brinkman, any thoughts on uh, what Dr. Green was sharing? So I'm, I'm always struck as we move into September and I start to to dust off um, the Christmas Carol, a great British story from Charles Dickens. And we think about the past, the present and the future. And for me, genetics is a study of our biological clock. And people ask how old I am. I say genetically, I'm two billion years old. <laughs> that's how old my and sometimes I feel it. I really do. Um and then when I think about personalized medicine and we're trying to get away from thinking about the reason for a particular medical issue, we're trying to understand the response. So that's where microbiology and tumor genetics and pharmacogenetics fits, fits in. So that's about the present. What are we going to do now for this particular patient? And for me, genomics is how we start to predict the future rather than stargazing into the past and time traveling we're crystal ball gazing and that involves bringing together your dna code but also the other aspects which are just as powerful such as your postcode and how do we integrate so linking into the sort of things that fiona has been talking about how can we make better predictions based on the different data sets and the population aspect of this for me is what do we actually know about data outcomes already and i think the area we we sometimes forget about is that linking not just of the data sets that we have but tracking them over time because that provides the opportunities to actually find those key patterns not just in evolution and migration um, but actually start to make better healthcare and well-being predictions as well. And that opens up all sorts of ethical issues about disparities and um, 
and and also about how we use data and store it. Yeah, I I think that's a great point. And Dr. Brinkman kind of started us on that point during her introduction of talking about just data sets and how important it is to have a diverse data set. Because if you don't have a diverse data set, we're not going to be able to use that data to then properly have that in the system to then pull from when we're trying to diagnose for certain genetic disorders or screening and all that. Uh, Dr. Brinkman, I would love to hear your thoughts on on those topics. Yeah, thank you for this. Uh, this is something near and dear to my heart because uh, we've been analyzing this in Canada, trying to get a cohorts and um, for analyses uh, that reflect our population. And it's challenging. It's really challenging to get at this uh, the diversity and making sure that we are um, not just getting uh, genetic diversity, but also diversity of people getting different exposures and different um, um, opportunities in life. And uh, in short, uh, that's been a big push right now. And uh, this has included um, wanting to um, engage more with Indigenous communities. We have um, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities in Canada that uh, we're try literally coming up to uh, Truth and Reconciliation Day. It's a statutory holiday now for us um, uh, this coming Monday as we uh, reflect and, and, um, and uh, try to address uh, some of the wrongdoings that happened. And in short, uh, you know, what's really been fascinating to me is learning how much uh, that together uh, with these um, indigenous communities and some of their indigenous ways of knowing and their indigenous knowledge approaches for how to um, uh, deal with data in a, in a very um, uh, considerate way has been very insightful. And I think what's really, what we're really realizing is we have sort of this interest in sort of co-creation of approaches for how to improve diversity. And that includes, for example, uh, a big a big challenge is um, that in uh, you know the Western world, we tend to think of the rights of the individual and wanting to protect the individual regarding their um, their uh, genomic data and other data about them. Whereas in um, indigenous, many indigenous communities, they care about uh, the rights of the individual and the rights of the community. And so what we're trying to do is marry that and say, okay, how can we make sure that uh, some of the analyses that are done, some of the interpretation that's done is done in a way that reflects both um, uh, being considerate of the individual and considerate of the in, um, community. It doesn't, in, in, um, in her, in her, um, um, accidentally caused harm basically on a community. For example, doing a genetic analysis of a group that implies something that basically um, uh, does cause harm to that community. So I think there's a lot we can do in terms of diversity. And I'm, I'm really encouraged by some of the directions that have been taken recently to uh, address this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think coming from my, myself in the U.S., it was interesting. Dr. Green, I had you on DNA Today about a year ago. We talked about just like the all of the updates we had seen over the year. Um, so that was, you know, of 2022. And one of the things we talked about is like the Pan Genome Project and that, you know, we're just trying to get a bunch of different genomes so that we can build up this database so that it's much more reflective of humans throughout the world and just how important that is. 
Um, one thing that I, I really wanted to ask you guys about, and I'm going to ask it at the top here so that we don't get too deep into conversations and I miss it. Because the three of you come from three different countries, I would love to hear what the unique challenges and benefits to your country's healthcare system, because we have three different healthcare systems represented. And thinking about these challenges and benefits really when it comes to integrating population genomics into clinical practice, kind of where we are today, but also where we're trying to go in the near future, because I feel like, you know, in the U.S., we have a lot of limitations because we're so big in the way our healthcare system is set up. But I don't know too much about the U.K. and, um, you know, the system in Canada. Um, Dr. Barwell, do you want to kind of start out just, you know, explaining kind of how what your challenges and benefits are with how the U.K. is set up with healthcare? Sure. So we've got a huge advantage in the fact that because we're under one umbrella, the ability for standardization of who can be tested, what they can be tested for, where they can be tested, interpretation of variants, access into research projects through, for instance, the clinical research network, which is through something called the National Institute of Health Research, are links with organizations such as Public Health England, Genomics England, provides great strengths and opportunities um, and integrated databasing. The challenge is not in the strategy or the standardization. The, the challenge is in the capacity and delivery because the number of tests that are being available now uh, and not just in terms of thinking about classical genetics, but thinking about personalized um, medicine and moving into genomics means that there are huge information um, governance issues and workforce management issues. Um, because it, you know, to create those scientists that understand the data and can help create it um, and to help us interpret it, it takes years. And I'll stop with just one thought, which is I heard someone say that one in three jobs for our children at school don't yet exist. So we're trying to teach and train our young people for things we don't even know about. that haven't even been invented. Um, and we're moving into the world of, 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 of AI and and data integration and new sciences. But the reality is you've got to predict and take a punt as to where the opportunities are going to be in the future. And training and attitudes, attitudes towards change are going to be really important. So workforce planning, I think, probably is a number one challenge for us here in the UK. Yeah, that makes sense. I imagine that the three of you have experienced that over your careers of what you started learning in undergrad, grad schools, you know, um, in your PhD programs and everything is very different than what you're doing today. You know, you guys well, have really whereas, experienced whereas the word genomics. What did not exist before 1980. You're so right, Dr. It was genetics, so but it yeah, was genetics, which was coined in about 1903. And genomics did not exist in the medical or scientific literature until 1987. I'm not going to guess the ages of my fellow panelists, but I will be <laughs> very bold on saying 
I graduated from medical school and graduate school. I had my MD PhD given to me in 1987, which means never once during my formal education, grade school, middle school, high school, college, MD, PhD, never once did I hear the word genomics. Wow. You know, and yet, you know so this, I think what Julian said is spot on. You know, I would, you know, and I'm not even sure the phrase data science existed more than about what, maybe 10 years ago. And now there's not enough data scientists in the world. So I completely agree that the, the workforce of the future are going to be experts in areas that haven't even been named yet, just like all of us, or at least I have become an expert in a field I never heard the word once in my formal education. Yeah, no, that is a very astute point between the two of you, that it's just things change very fast in genetics now, genomics, you know, with all that. And and Dr. Brinkman, I kind of wanted to pull you in in terms of the Canadian perspective, because from the little I know of, you know, being in grad school with Canadians, that's kind of how I've learned the most of it. Um, there, it's similar to the UK in terms of being, um, you know, under one umbrella that the government really has this this healthcare system. But can you either debunk what I just said or kind of explain that further? I, I actually can debunk it a little bit. So uh, first, I'll just mention um, just to step back that uh, I absolutely agree with the with both of you about the um, the um, sort of like work, the workforce issue, workforce yeah. um, development. But I will disagree in the sense that I think what's key is to develop good critical thinkers, and then they can be agile and handle. You guys have done very well in your careers because you probably do have very good critical thinking and social skills that were necessary to basically pivot to whatever comes up. And uh, and I think that's what's going to be very important. And in our, our school curriculum, uh, I would really love to see more emphasis on that. And the fact that, yes, you do not, the what students are learning right now, they are going to be doing something different in the future. And that's okay. They can pivot if they've got the right tools and skills. So, um, but uh I also just want to say that um, for Canada, it's actually a federated healthcare system. Our system is much more complicated than the, I'm, you know, we're very jealous of the US and the UK because uh, you have uh, some really nice infrastructure, some nice, um, uh, you know, setups that basically we do not have in Canada. We we depend on the UK and the US for, for many um aspects of our genomics, um, you know, from databases to um, several analyses. Uh, and the federated healthcare system, which means each province and territory is their own um, healthcare system, uh, can be a challenge. However, it's also a real plus, and that is that what we can develop in terms of our federated healthcare system, in terms of data sharing, in terms of genomics and coordinating that, um, that can be a model of what can be done on the on the international stage. And so we have initiatives like the um, GA4GH um, um, you know, standardization where Canada has played one of the lead roles in that, um, in part because we're just so attuned to this issue of the importance of um, data standards, data harmonization, and getting organized when it comes to a federated system. So I, you know, hopefully we can really make some inroads in that front. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I just point out that everybody's always jealous of the other healthcare system. I mean, because to be honest, think that the U.S. healthcare system is something to be proud of. Um, I'm not proud of it. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of our advances. I'm proud of our capabilities. 
as a as a comprehensive country think world you know country view you know we have we have a lot of problems we're a terribly broken system at many levels there's another dimension Kara, that i think we want to make sure to emphasize that i think each of our countries just like every other part of the world also faces significant differences with respect to the diversity of their population and that brings in which you know relates to this discussion about population genomics and certainly the us is this remarkable melting pot and I, i'm not claiming we have the biggest you know challenges associated with diversity but i think our challenges are certainly different than what they face in the uk or up in canada um and again it's not better not worse not harder not easier it's just different and so i do think that some of the things we deal with here both for healthcare and for cohort-based studies that feed into population genomics topics, it's a it's just a different circumstance. And so that is also another variable uh, that each of us deal with, both on the research side and on the clinical side. Yeah, no, it definitely is. I think all of them have their perks and their consequences, but grass is always greener on the other side, right? And when I'm talking to my Canadian friends, it's like, oh, well, you know, they get this covered and this covered, but the wait list might be really long compared to, you know, if I'm seeking healthcare or something on, on different aspects. So there's always something that's better somewhere else. But I think you guys all highlight really interesting points and just those strengths and weaknesses of the different healthcare systems and what we can learn from each other. I think it's interesting when I've seen, you know, one of the um, areas of like genomics that I've been following is, is a lot of these baby seek projects where in, in the U S in certain, um, states we've been doing, like, I think it's baby bear in California, um, baby deer in Michigan. So there's these different projects, but that it's and, and Dr. Green, correct me. Cause obviously, you know, this stuff better than I do. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see these studies coming up, but then comparing it to like in the UK, you guys have had the hundred thousand genomes project. And that's been going much longer from my understanding. And that with the kind of healthcare system you have, it's easier to be organizing all of that data because in the U S from my perspective, we're kind of fragmented because we don't have one centralized database. So I imagine just when it comes to data sharing, it's so much easier in the UK and to some extent Canada compared to the US. What well, I don't know. Do, am I getting this right? What do you guys think about that? I mean, yeah. my job, I, I'm constantly hurting caps. I mean, that's yeah. what we have to do. It's like a bunch of different caps, all going different and getting the data to be shared and having any sort. I mean, there are things we can do when we fund grants to sort of help to coordinate it. But I live in jealousy of what's going on in the UK because they somebody high up makes a command decision. And because of the way their health filters system, down. Boom, there they have it. And they've got a lot of zeros after their number when they got to 100K. And, you know, the fact is we're, we're, we are eager to see their results and we're going to take notes when they report them because we're going to learn a lot. I think exactly has really yeah. greatly made them the leader in, in many of these things. And I, I, I think it's terrific and I applaud them. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important that in this age of especially, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk more about AI as well, that we're just able to share so much. I think much more than decades ago when it was much harder to be working internationally with people, just with the technology that we have today. To dive in a little bit deeper into more details and examples, um, would love to hear about how you each envision genomic data being effectively integrated into the healthcare systems 
to then benefit patients. Because at the end of the day, the reason we're doing all of this is to benefit people, right? We're trying to make healthcare better um, and have better outcomes for people, whether that be preventative medicine um, or personalized medicine or, you know, a mix of all of these different types. Um, but maybe just thinking about an example of a patient walks in, how have the, how were they affected by the behind the scenes work that it took to get there? Um, anyone have thoughts? I don't want to pick on someone right away. <laughs> yeah. So for me, the main win in medicine will be pharmacogenetics. That That's the low hanging through. How can you get somebody in accident and emergency on a Friday night or your general practice on a Tuesday morning? How can we get to a point where they're able to get that right drug at the right right dose and reduce harm and potentially improve compliance? And there's a logistics around getting that test. There's also a training issue about, because none of the doctors or pharmacists would have been taught about how this is going to be implemented into clinical practice. And then the third thing is patient-based solutions. So how can we get to a point where you can QR code your prescription and, and get that red, amber, green, simple signals? So I think that's that's the first point we will, we will start. Rare diseases, there's several thousand. And so although we could pick off some of the more common ones or the ones where there's multi-system aspect to it, and of course, you look at familial breast cancer with computer modeling, um, and, and phenotypes obviously can help with that um, by bringing in different data sets, such as alcohol body mass index, et cetera, as we link across to can risk, for instance. Um, there will be the opportunities to start being able to get these better predictions using the sort of multi-layered data we've talked about. But I think for your standard patient, how they're really going to see genomic medicine, I think, first of all, will be um, in the drugs that they're prescribed. But it will require training, it requires IT solution. And it take we need to take the patient from being the passenger on their health journey to being the steward and in time, the pilot. And I think that's gonna to take to the end of the century before they're absolutely driving it. But I would argue that in the twenties and the thirties, we've got to start giving them the tools um, as well. And that, because it's the patient who needs to own this really in time. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point. And that we've, we've seen pharmacogenomics and we've been using it for years, but I feel like we've been dabbling and it, and it's not becoming a standard in terms of in healthcare practice of, all right, let's check this. We're going to give you, you're coming, as you kind of said, to emergency care, like an ER, um, an ED, and you need pain medication immediately, right? Because something catastrophic has happened. Being able to have that data on file of what are you with your genetics, is it better to give you drug A or B? And then what dose does it make sense to give you? And that's information that immediately could be could be provided in, in affecting the patient. Obviously, way other areas, right? Because pharmacy is, is just in every area of medicine. Um, but I think that's something because we've already started using that, especially I've seen that used 
um, in the psychiatric area of what med is maybe best to start you on for depression, anxiety, different uh, mental health challenges there. But I, I see this as expanding very, very quickly there. Um, Dr. Green, Dr. Brinkman, other I, other kind of I, thoughts? I, I like that optimism that Julian expressed, I, I especially around pharmacogenomics. Um, I used to lead with pharmacogenomics when I would sort of rattle off my list. And I, I will tell you, um, at least here in the U.S., I, there's been a little bit of pushback about, about maybe that optimism isn't being matched with reality. I, I'm hopeful that, and, and maybe some of the things that need to happen that, that Julia mentioned are the, exactly what's holding us back. But I, I've been disappointed with the uptake and I share some of the some of the barriers I agree with that I've heard, and I'm hoping we get there eventually. But I have I in my more recent conversations, I tend to list it about third or fourth on my list because I have because the uptake hasn't been as aggressive as I had been hopeful. By the way, I will point out one thing we didn't mention. So we touched on rare diseases. I think we touched a little on cancer, which will probably be a big one. We certainly, um, you know, I I certainly agree. Pharmacogenomics, the potential is is tremendous. But let's not forget non-invasive prenatal testing, uh, which is the number one genomic test used worldwide today. So just by sheer numbers, it's got everybody else, every other modality beaten. Um, I'm ordering it every day, Dr. Green. You got uh, it. <laughs> great. And I just think we should make sure to, and I'm not, I'm not saying one's better than other or one area is more important. I just want to, I want to, you know, I want to spike the football by pointing out, that's at least an American term, that's American. But, <laughs> yes, be careful. Know. Yeah, I don't know. You're phrasing it that way. <laughs> but, um, you know, only because we are there because of the technology surge we've seen and fostered over the last 20 years in genomics, that now non-invasive prenatal uh, testing is routine. And in many countries and many environments, it's getting paid for more and more. And it's the number one genomic test. And it's all because of the technology surge. And I think uh, people are better off for it. So I think we should acknowledge that. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely. And I think, you know, also on that list, carrier screening too, because more and more people are getting carrier screening. You know, it's still usually while they're pregnant and not before they're pregnant, just in terms of how the workflow is happening. And people don't know that that is an option for them to get carrier screening before they're trying to conceive or pregnant. And, you know, about half of pregnancies are not planned as statistics I've, I've seen. Um, so Dr. Green, I got to ask then if, if pharmacogenomics is lower on your list, what would be number one? Oh, well, and again, I want to emphasize it's only lower. It's not lower on my list. In terms Sorry. Of the, yeah. You know, the, it's in just, terms of how I, it's going to integrate. I don't lead with it because often as I lead with it, I get a lot, even, you know, even you even said psychiatrists, you know, and yeah. psychiatric, it, it all makes sense. But then when I talk to, you know, academic and government leaders in, in mental health, they say, ah, it hasn't lived up to its promise. It's not there. People don't lie. You know, they're not convinced. So I think there's, I'm just saying there's more, um, there's more, um, uh, I don't know if I don't want to say pessimism, that's too negative. I just mm -hmm. think there's four questions that come up about how big of a deal is pharmacogenomics going to be writ large across all of medicine. And I, I, I share the optimism, but I just am, I'm just pointing out the, the, the hesitancy, the I think that has, that's the right word. Hesitancy yeah. that I, yeah. that I tend to in, in, encounter. Um, I, my, I always lead with cancer because I think in the long run, I think cancer is going to, is where you're going to see the greatest impact. I always go second to rare diseases in different settings, including uh, neonates, including urgent sequencing. And I think, you know, there's a lot of evidence that say rare disease is a big deal. And then I go to um, prenatal because it's the number one test. 
And then I usually mention pharmacogenomics and notice that none of us have said polygenic risk scores yet. No, and, uh, which is very I, interesting. I just, <laughs> which, but I will just immediately say, you know, when I talk about polygenic risk scores, when it comes to genomic medicine, I immediately throw up three question marks. And I say, that's a research area at present. It is not genomic medicine implementation yet. That's, a, that's being studied and we should be studying it. We're, we're putting significant money into studying it, but it's not ready for prime time. It is not an example, I would say, that's now standard of care. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good point in that we have, I mean, polygenic risk scores are so complicated. You're looking at many, many, many data points from the genome to say, what risk does someone have of developing something that is kind of, you know, I don't want to say generic, but let's say something like heart disease that's it, it's it's could be pulled from so many different aspects. So I think just naturally that's going to be very, very complicated to come up with. But I, I'm excited about, you know, the future. And I think that it, polygenic risk scores I was seeing more as is a topic being discussed a couple of years ago and more of a buzzword a couple of years ago. And now I think, you know, it's still relevant, but we're not, I think, in a lot of conversations I'm having is focused on it. Um, but yeah, I, I think cancer, as you said, too, is one that we're already getting the advantage of, okay, if you are HER2 negative, BRCA negative, we're going to prescribe you these certain drugs. Um, and so we're already kind of seeing the benefits of that. And it's only going to get more so, um, cause that's really just focused on that breast cancer aspect. Dr. Brinkman, anything else to add? We kind of got this running list going or anything else to echo is like, yes, that's one that I'm really thinking about affecting a patient and a person specifically. Yeah, actually, uh, you know, they, they, you both have summarized everything uh, very well. Um, I will though add that I think one thing we do have to be careful of in the future is making sure that we realize that genomics data is really not very useful without that contextual data that's associated with it. And so we really need to make sure we're taking the time to get organized with contextual data or metadata or whatever you call it, the other data about these patients and these individuals and uh, the environments they're in uh, that can really um, fulfill this equation and basically deal with this issue of, of um, sort of nature nurture and what is the impact and what, what can we do and how is that gonna translate into um, a successful health healthy outcome. So uh, I, I do think that's one thing that I see too often is, is people, uh, there's fantastic technology development. I've been really impressed with the, you know, completing um, uh, complete enclosed genomes and other, um, you know, achievements now that are really going to um, transform things. However, uh, the contextual data tends to get, I think, not as much um, um, effort in terms of, of organizing it. And I would really like to see that more. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of areas for us to be working on and just con continuously doing there. And, you know, I, I think one aspect that we've, we've hinted at is just being able to collect and organize all of this information. Um, so, I mean, Dr. Green, as the director of the NI, I have to get the letters right, NHGRI, um, 
how is your organization working to ensure that we do have optimal utilization and collection of the genomic data so that we can effectively use that in clinical applications? And then Dr. Brinkman, I'm going to want to hear from you after about just like sorting through all of that kind of data, because you have like a specialty in that. Um, but yeah, I mean, for, for being in, in the U S especially with all of our fragmentation, how, how do we even approach that? Like, I mean, even thinking about, you know, the, all of us research program is massive. Like how, how do you even approach this to make sure that we're doing this in the best way we can? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. There's a lot of things, um, packaged into that question. So first thing I want <laughs> the first thing I want to distinguish is, is reference genome data and, I want to put in a request now that we come back to the pan-genome, because I think there's a really important point yeah. about the pan-genome that relates to this conversation around population genomics and diagnostics, and I want to make that point. So one thing we do is we we are funding uh, the creation of a lot of uh, genome sequences from diverse populations and packaging them within this pan-genome program, and I want to come back and talk about it. Those are reference genomes, but I think your question was probably more along the lines of, how are we collecting all the genomic data that's out there, um, both in terms of um, genomic data from whole genome sequencing efforts as part of cohort studies or disease-specific studies, the cohort studies being something like all of us, but there's a lot of other data that's being collected associated with lots of other studies. Um, and, not, and then, of course, there's also the data that's being produced by diagnostic companies about genomic variants and, and their relevance and and and. Um, and linkages to specific uh, phenotypic information. So those are, you know, there's a lot of different answers for all these things. What I would say is the NIH, starting with our institute and having a very strong data sharing policy that if we give you money and you generate genomic data, you must share it. It has to be properly consented. We have to put it under controlled access because it's human data, but you must do that. That then got generalized to an NIH-wide policy such that now that is sort of the expectation with some minor exceptions is that you must share your data. When you, and so, and then if you look at the All of Us program, the All of Us research program and a million individuals, you know, that's actually, you know, that's absolutely a term of, of enrollment. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of individuals are certainly allowing their data to be shared. And that will eventually yield over a, a million uh, genome sequences or more from people in the US. When it comes to diagnostic companies, it's up to them. Um, it's we didn't pay for it. Government didn't pay for it. Healthcare paid for it. Um, and some are 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 being uh, altruistic and are sharing and putting it in data resources, and others are not. And there's all we could do is is arm twist, but we can't control. But I would say there's significant commitment at NIH to get this data shared, develop the infrastructure for housing that data, having a lot of software and computational biologists, data scientists analyzing that data, developing resources of these genomic variants, and eventually through efforts like our ClinGen program, clinical genome research, um, clinical, gene, clinical genomics resource or ClinGen is this idea of getting people to better curate and understand what the, the role of these genomic variants are with respect to gene function and genetic diseases. It it is really hard when we see that so many like when when tests are ordered like let's say I have a patient sitting in my office right and we're ordering testing that is being sent to a lab that is commercial a commercial lab so they are right. keeping that information I'm not sending this to the NIH you guys don't get that information right. so it is hard because you've got so many labs that have their own databases and that's why 
you know, as a clinician, as a genetic counselor, we have this tough thing where we're like, well, one lab calls it a pathogenic variant. One lab calls it a variant of unknown significance or uncertain significance. And we're like, well, which one do we go with? We don't, we don't have this centralized database to say, oh, well, this is what us as a genetics community has said, this is what this variant means. So I think that that's what's tough, but I'm starting to see changes of some major labs that have kind of been under fire in the past for not data sharing, making big efforts to data share. And I don't want to name names, but you know, it's, I think we're all kind of thinking of the same ones, but it, it's encouraging to see that data sharing is happening, but, and it's hard. You can't just data share all at once because these are huge, huge data files. You can't just be like, oh yeah, here, here's a million genomes. Here you go. Let me just airdrop that to you. So right. I think there's also just that administrative side that's really tough. Um, but Dr. Brinkman, when it does come to, you know, analyzing these variants and all of these big data sets, I mean, how do we even start to do this? Like, I remember you mentioning at the very top when you were introducing yourself, something like, was it 57,000 million like data points? Like, I, I mean, how do we even start processing this? Is it, are you starting to use AI within your teams to do this? Like to me, as someone that's not a biostatistician, I'm like completely overwhelmed with that number. I don't even know where you would start. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think there's a couple of things here. First is that it's uh, when it comes to the sort of quote contextual data that, you know, is a lot of those 57 million data points is um, that you often have to start with coming up with what we call a minimal metadata model, like this minimal information that you think people should share, like they should all be sharing uh uh, sex and describe. It's amazing how many different ways somebody can write down male and female and other, you know, it's just amazing. But uh, uh, but basically, if we can just start to standardize some of the basics, and then you build on that. Um, with the um, uh, Seneca project, which is a project that was doing cohort um, data sharing between um, North America, Europe, and Africa, um, we found that uh, another thing that was really helpful was actually synthetic data is uh, if you want to build these resources to help with um, uh, developing ways to be interoperable and share data, um, just coming up with some synthetic data sets so that the um, developers of these infrastructure can sort of see what examples of what's being done uh, without actually using real data, which might be subject to um, difficulties in, in retrieving it from uh, certain countries. So we found uh, that was really, really helpful. Uh, but so in short, I think there's 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 a bunch of things that can be done, uh, but uh, we still certainly have a long way to go um, with regard to getting um, really organized and getting to that point with, uh, you know, just standardizing approaches and methods. And I think one challenge is going to be that this is a moving target. You know, the technology is going to graduate, keep improving and what we collect is going to keep changing. And so um, it, it would just be nice to make sure that globally we're setting um, some uh, resources and infrastructure to sort of get organized because it's like garbage collection. It, you, um, they, you know, many companies have learned you sort at the source, you know, you sort at the source, you get organized at the beginning, and then it's much easier. If you try to sort of sort or do things after the fact, after you've collected massive amounts of, of garbage and then sort it, that's much harder. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot we can do and don't, not to imply it, genomes are garbage, I think, it's just, but we, <laughs> there might be parts that are less important though. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. Trying to streamline and say, where do we need to focus maybe for this particular study versus another one? 
Um, and yeah, just having all of that data kind of in the same format, like you said at the beginning, like people might answer um, a question very differently and you have to, you know, make sure that that's a, that's a binary and there are only maybe two answers or a set number of answers that could be said. Um, but I, I wanted to, um, if I could just, I will add that um, regarding the AI point, I think there's a lot that can be done in this area, but we do have to be very careful. Um, we do know that some of the AI, like the large language models, they do hallucinate. Um, so I do think it's, um, it's important that we use that. Uh, for example, I found it most useful for creativity and coming up with ideas for things. But when you're wanting to really generate um, hard data, uh, you know, you can use something like that to like people are using it to help with coding some things, but you really do have to be very careful still with this. It's still in its infancy. Um, but I think there's a lot of potential there and certainly been very encouraged by um, some of the AI developments in some areas with regard to medicine. It's been uh, really impressive what's happening. Yeah, it's Fiona, been exciting. Become a technical word in data science. <laughs> I saw you laugh at that, Dr. Green. <laughs> I've never heard that said that way. I like it. Uh, what, sorry, which? The hallucinating? Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah no, it's when the... an official term. It's an official Is term. Is it? Wow. But yeah. Like chat GPT hallucinates, you know, and, uh, and that's uh, and I've seen that happen. I mean, it's, it's pretty funny when it, it comes up with something completely. It kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it it yeah. tries to fill in the gaps. And sometimes the way it does that is uh, you're like, oh, I don't know about this, but I, I agree with you. Even in my own life, I think it's been really great for idea, um, you know, uh, generation and like writing of like a draft. But yeah, I think it's also important for people to, if they're thinking about, oh, how can I utilize AI in my own workflow of stuff? Make sure you're not putting any HIPAA information into that because if you're not using your own AI software with the, your company or government, then I don't know. It's kind of a, a scary area right now. Um, and I wanted to mention that we do have some questions coming in. Would love to see more questions. Um, I have plenty of questions, but I want to make sure I we answer all of yours in the audience. Um, but before I get to those, Dr. Barwell, I did kind of want to ask you, is, is someone that kind of um, you know works with patients and everything, you mentioned at the beginning that it's going to be important with all of this information and, and really being able to utilize like population genomics in clinical practice, literally the name of this installment here, it's going to be important for patients to be taking the lead on that and for people to say, okay, I'm doing this education for myself and, and I'm teaching myself what I need to ask and really being their own advocate with it. But that means they're going to have to learn a lot of this. And, you know, all of you have had really successful careers in genetics, and obviously you've had a lot of training in this. Um, but for other people that are not in genetics, not in healthcare, how can we really be educating people and engaging them in all of this genomic information and, and having them understand the implications for healthcare? Because I think this is something that, you know, science communication is always an area that we need to focus on, but it genetics is getting and genomics, I should say, is getting more and more complicated. So I think it's harder to teach, you know, if you're watching a news show or you're on NPR and you've only got six minutes. Um, what are your thoughts on just how we can best inform the public? Yeah, so I, I'd split it into two. So when I started in clinical genetics, you had to be able to say, oh, well, that patient, I remember uh, I read a journal about this, um, which was published in 1978, and we need to go for this gene, and it's going to be this variant, because testing was expensive. 
and it took years. So now, rather than what gene do you think this is, the question is, we've got all this data, what does it mean? So it's therefore really important we get very good, not only genotype databases, but also make sure that the clinicians are putting in really nice phenotypic data and that we get the data sharing that we talk about. So when it comes to individual variants, it's going to be linking those data sets around the world. And I'm really struck that if you've got um, somebody from Africa who's managed to get into one of our clinics versus somebody that is native to Leicester, for instance, even when you've got them and they're putting out their arm, the chance of making a diagnosis is so much lower because of those disparities of the control databasing that we've talked about. So disparities are multi-layered, um, culturally, language, but also at a genomic level. The second issue is really about whether we move into a world where we're almost going to have a digital twin. A digital twin that we can use for modeling if we get cancer, a digital twin, decide on what drug we might have, but also to think about our cardiovascular risk. If I have these six donuts and don't go to the gym um, and don't buy that dog and my blood pressure is this, what is it likely to do to my quality of life and my length of life? And of course, the second point, if you're happy to generate that digital twin is, are we gonna be comfortable with the decisions that that computer model comes up with. Is it a case of computer on, brain off? And is it? And are we going to be comfortable to link our results to our DNA code and our postcode? I mean, in 2020 in the UK, we had A-level results, which are the exams, that I guess, similar to the end of high school at the age of 18. And um, they were linked to previous attainment, but also the school's attainment for the last five years, effectively linked to postcode, where you lived, your zip code. And a lot of people were very unhappy with that because it was outside their sense of social justice and control. So digital twinning and better predictions is one thing, but we are going to need to think very carefully about, do we feel that it hits into our sense of social justice when it comes to delivery? There's an, an issue with regards to the collation and the accuracy, but a whole nother ball came when we think about how you might use that data. Once you're linking in your food choices, your Fitbit, your sleep app, if it tells you your risk of Alzheimer's is 44% higher, what are you going to do with that? What happens if your insurance company gets access to that or your health insurance? So I think there's a lot of issues about how we integrate that data and then how how we use it and i think we need to be almost thinking that the technology is not going to hold us back here it's going to be how we respond to that um, as well and i think we need to urgently have that debate as well yeah i think that's a very good point dr green add on to it yeah well what i want to do is i want to pick up on the first point Julian just made related to disparities related to the genomic data, because I think it'll tie back into pan-genome. I was going to say, we had to hit that. Into, right, tie, ties into population genomics. And I really want to make a very important point that I found was 
um, sort of a, an inference that some people struggled with. And I mean, some people meaning the general public or maybe even some of my colleagues. This relates to earlier. Th so keep in mind, my institute funds the Human uh, Genome Reference Program in the United States, which is an attempt to try to generate a, a, a large number, 350 very high quality sequences from highly diverse individuals that represent the human population. And of course, that is uh, an attempt to then create a pan genome. And they published major papers earlier this year uh, describing the first human pan genome reference. So our institute got very involved in the communication of what is a pan genome, in, which is a complicated topic in and of itself. How is it going to be used in various ways? And in particular, why is it so important for addressing issues around disparities and diversity when it comes to genomic medicine. And one of the things I came to realize is that a lot of people, you know, a lot of people hear us say that all of us are like 99.6% identical. And so why do you need the appropriately matched reference? Why do you need a pan genome to help us get an appropriately matched reference for every patient? Just like Julian was talking about a patient from Africa compared to a patient who might be from the UK. And, and, and what I realized, in, and we're actually working on this now at the Institute to develop better tools to communicate this, including animations and graphics, is that I think a lot of people don't realize that at least for now, when a patient gets their genome sequenced um, for diagnostic purposes, they don't get a de novo end-to-end -end sequence where, where everything gets assembled just based on their data. Rather, their data is put together, their genome sequence is put together to the extent it's even put together based on using an existing reference that you basically use alignments to help facilitate the like generation. A it's like a template. Okay. This is what gets to be very important because if a patient's a little bit of sequence from a patient's genome does not match anywhere in any of your available references, it gets tossed out. You know, you, most of the time they don't know what to do with it. It sort of like falls on the floor because it doesn't fit in anywhere. And so this is why we need to have a set of reference genomes. We need a pan genome so that every person's genome who we sequence as a patient as part of genomic medicine, we will make sure to capture all the sequence data being generated and know where to put it in the genome and know where to contextualize it for diagnostic purposes. And so this is why this idea of a mismatch between the references that are available and the diversity of patients that walk in the clinics becomes a disparities issue, which is one of the things we hope to solve by creating a human pangenome reference. Now, that sounds easy, and there's a million questions you could ask about how exactly is that going to work and how do you match them? And all of us, you know, many people are blended, and so we all have two genomes in us. All great questions, which is why we're, at least we and others around the world, are funding researchers to figure all this out. But I think it's an important thing to understand is that without adequate diversity among our references, some people's genome segments may never be analyzed appropriately. And if they contain medically relevant information, that information will be lost. Yeah, that's what I was going to say of like, let's say you have a kid with an undiagnosed, what we think is a rare disease that is has a genetic cause to it. And it is a single gene or a single nucleotide change where you have an A changes to a T, something like that. But it's in that section of the genome that is on the cutting room floor. You're, you're going to miss that diagnosis. Exactly. So 
Yeah. So that, that's really concerning. I didn't know that, that that's how that worked until this moment. So I'm sure other people are having that same aha moment I'm having of like, oh God, that's how it works. And remember, so, remember, I, and this is a really important point. A diagnostic genome sequence is, you know, reasonably inexpensive. Uh, you know, it depends which currency you're using, but you know, less than a thousand US dollars. A reference sequence, high quality, where we get every last nucleotide is tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, and eventually we hope it'll be cheaper. But again, what, what patients get for genomic medicine is a quick and dirty, cheap genome sequence. It, and it, it totally relies on a properly matched reference to make sure things don't get missed. That's wow. the reason why we need a pan-genome. That is among so important. Other among other reasons. Right, but that being a major reason when it comes to diagnostics, um, yeah. especially for people that are, are coming from different areas of the world. Um, yeah, that is so important. Wow. I hope people, if people are tuning, tuning out, rewind the past five minutes and listen to that again. Um, but we're going to get to some, um, audience questions now. Um, so our first question is how does the panel imagine first contact general practitioners who typically are less trained in genomic medicine? How can they effectively participate and how that's going to work? If someone, if I'm going to the doctor and I'm seeing my GP for something, how are they going to take advantage of genomic medicine just being a general practitioner? Because a lot of what we've been talking about is in different specialties. We've talked about pregnancy. We've talked about cancer. We've hit on rare diseases, cardio a little bit. So what about just general practitioners that, as we've mentioned, especially if they're of a certain age, they're not going to understand genomics. And even if they're younger or they recently came out of med school, they only learn so much genetics. We we have um, medical students that rotate through our office and I love asking them. I'm like, so how much genetics do you, have you learned so far in their third years? And they're like, not much, which I hate hearing. But um, what, are, what are your guys' thoughts on just how um, general practitioners can take advantage and start using this in their own practice or what they should be aware of? Um, I, I will just add that I think one thing we have to be very sensitive to is that the general practitioners really need um, um, interpretation and tools, you know, because they're really expected to know a lot. And, um, and we, we should be, I think we have a responsibility in these different areas of genomics and different applications of genomics to really provide that information in a, in a, a good, um, robust, digestible form. So I, I would really like to see more of that. So I think it's a little bit more, the onus is on us to, to really fix that up. Yeah, just more resources. The professional societies are going to play a very important role here, especially among the specialties. You know, we helped support and stood up an organization called the Internet, the International Society for um, Practitioner Education. And I, I'm getting the, not the letters wrong. Internet, the ISCC is the Coordinating Center, and then it's Practitioner Education and Genomics. It's basically an umbrella group that... Um, it helps pull together different um, specialty professional societies to help develop the proper educational materials, working with us, working with others to stand up um, uh, the right kind of information they need to be able to implement genomics in their clinical practice, recognizing there's many, many nooks and crannies of the of the medical ecosystem. Yeah. So for me, there's about four different main presentations. So you've got the patient that comes in with a large report which has got 35 different genomic variants, hemochromatosis, alpha-1 antitrypsin, BRCA1, and they're unsure which one's significant because it's intelligible to the patient. And that's a real heart sink, I think, for the GP. Um, and I think when you've got something of that complexity, it's almost certainly going to have to go to clinical genetics. 
The second one is something like uh, a SNP analysis factoring in cardiovascular risk or breast cancer risk, a computer model for a particular condition. The third one is they come up and they say, oh, my daughter's just got this gene report, which says she's got this particular condition. And then the classic one, which is the patient who's got vague abdominal pain and they're feeling a little bit tired. And the critical thing is to ask, well, do you have a family history? And you find out that it's likely to be Lynch syndrome because of the bowel and gynecological. And you've missed an opportunity, if you didn't ask that, to pick up the right-sided bowel tumour or the endometrial cancer in someone premenopausal. Um, and so, first of all, most GPs will learn through those four types of case presentations and putting them in a dynamic way. So we've put them into bio, bioethics, for instance, to think about family dynamics. Um, the, the challenging one, I think, is the first one multiple genomic traits that come from a report which have not been put in a patient-friendly format. I think GPs are going to struggle with some of that. We could do some education sessions around it, but I think the, your cardiologist will be okay with the variance in the cardiomyopathy gene, but not across 20 domains. I think this is where we it's going to keep my kids still in shoes for a little bit longer in clinical genetics and hematology are doing their own, a lot of their genetics. But once you're looking at bullet holes across the whole genome, I think you are going to need people who have got some sense of how to bring that together. But basically opening that dialogue with GPs, case-based discussions, thinking about the presentations and workshopping. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and I want to punt this next question to Dr. Brinkman. With the volume of data presently available, what is most needed to practically leverage the data towards improving healthcare outcomes for patients? I know we've talked a bit about this, but anything else to add just when it comes to actually utilizing the data? Yeah, so um, I think it's, again, a bit about getting organized. At least that's certainly one thing I see. Um, I think also this this issue of diversity is still really important. Uh even people who, you know, we just, we really need to properly address um, the pharmacogenomics challenges through this idea of having diversity so that we can really make sure this is going to be effective for everybody, not just effective for 80%. So, uh, so certainly I would say, um, it, you know, it's, it might seem counterintuitive, but just in general, like everybody will benefit from more diversity to, to make sure that we deal with the fact that uh, you know, uh, essentially nobody's sort of common. Um, you know, I, I always love that comment about rare diseases. I mean, they're so common. Uh, there's so many that they're uh, rare diseases are really not that rare. And so, uh, and uh, likewise for all the different kinds of, um, idiosyncrasies your particular genome might have, uh, I think we really need to make sure that we are capturing uh, that diversity and uh, but really it does come down to getting organized. I, I would also like to maybe add um, the sort of social sciences side of this. Uh, you know, we tend to focus on the science and the technology and we come up with these this great idea for a, a test. But then we've got to get make sure that that test and the way it's being implemented 
um, really works with society and how people are going to interpret it, how people are going to feel when they get that result. Um, we see examples of, of um, people getting a, a genetic test where, uh, you know, it's really beneficial that they learn about something and can get a treatment. They get, you get people who get a genetic test and they learn they do not have a um, mutation that's uh, found in their family and they have a bit of survivor's guilt that they don't have this thing that other people in their family have. So uh, I, I do think we do want to be really careful and uh, getting back to that idea of community that there's sort of uh, protecting individuals and 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 what they, uh, you know, their rights, but uh, let's not forget about that some of these, uh, uh, you know, impacts can be at the sort of community level or, you know, involving um, certain populations of people that basically this, uh, you know, a particular um, uh, issue is affecting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's very well said. And I think we have time for one more question here. Um, and Dr. Barwell, you'll probably be the best person to answer this. Recently, the British Society for Genetic Medicine published a guidance for clinical practice about the retention of family records in genetics. How do you see current clinical data retention policies impacting the way in which genomic medicine and population genomics is delivered in practice? So it is changing to a degree. Um, genetic counselling was very much based on the Huntington's model. Why would you want to know? And we must be protective of patients and their mental health and family dynamics and who has access to this. As we're moving to a more personalised medicine uh, and more mainstreaming where these tests are carried out more broadly, in healthcare settings. We need more people to be able to access that result, but there are major implications because obviously you need families sometimes to come together to make a diagnosis. And yet everybody has a right fundamentally to their own confidentiality. So the, the, the middle way is that pedigrees will have to sit behind a firewall, particularly particularly if they've got names, um, but the actual genetic result of the patient will be placed into a more generic model of healthcare, electronic healthcare record. And, and that's something that we're starting to see more of in the UK, particularly for um, personalised medicine. Um, you know, I go further and would say, well, actually, we don't have the health record, the patient has the health record and releases it to me if they look at me in the eye and think that I might be able to be trusted. Um, and so I would change it even further. But I think we're moving in the right direction. Obviously, it's always good to be cautious and have debates about these things because as you say in families, once you've said something, let the genie out of the bottle, you can't bring it back. So we have a national genetic ethics group which discusses these issues called genetics um and um and i think that's a really great resource and it's genetic counselors who are very much leading the way here yeah yeah definitely i think that's a, a really good point and just i i like your your idea of patients being able to release their own data to specific healthcare providers i think that that would be a great 
thing to be able to accomplish. Um, I think maybe a little hard on, on the actual like application side of that. Um, but love, love the idea with that. Any other, um, thoughts, Dr. Green, Dr. Brinkman on that? No, I mean, the point I'd make, and I know we're starting to wind down, I would just make this point that I think encapsulates this entire discussion is, is just think about where this field has come in the last 20, 25 years. I mean, 20 years since the Human Genome Project ended. You know, I, I think back 20 years ago, you think about the genomics community, you think about the issues we were facing, they, 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 they had some obvious societal connections, but they, they weren't nearly of the scale and breadth of what we're dealing with now. And it's because we're, we're, this is now becoming relevant in medicine. And it's like any other thing that infuses itself into medicine is that it gets really complicated really quick because it's multidimensional. It's, it has a lot of societal challenges. Every system has its own complexities. So, you know, I, I, I just want to point out that while there's a lot of, of Herculean tasks ahead of us, you know, we should be really um, gratified to see that in a relatively short period of time, 20 years since the first sequence of a human genome was generated, here we are dealing with some of the greatest challenges society has faced related to healthcare and diversity and disparities and, and fairness and, and equity, et cetera, et cetera. And if, if genomics can um, to help with some of these things, that's terrific. If not, we just have to we have to own the responsibility associated with our own advances and recognize that with that with these great advances come this incredible responsibility to think about how this is going to be done equitably and fairly. And I'd rather be part of that conversation because of our advances than to just sort of see it be relevant to others. Yeah, I think that's very well said and to close us out because we've come a long way in the last 20 years and, and this is the anniversary because it was 2003. So we are in 2023. So now it's it's been 20 years since that first draft and and we've made so many improvements since then, even the telomere to telomere um, you know, final project um, that that was, I want to say maybe April of 2022, something like that. Um, so it's just remarkable how far we've come. And, and I just have to thank you so much, Dr. Green, Dr. Brinkman, Dr. Barwell. I mean, this has been such a fascinating conversation and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I've learned so much. Um, I, I'm going to go out and say it's one of my favorite installments of the phenotype speaker series. So I think this has just been such an awesome conversation. I had high expectations. You guys exceeded them. Um, so I just really appreciate hearing all of your unique perspectives, especially coming from three different countries. I think it's just remarkable that we're able to get together and have these conversations and see what's different, what we can pull from each country's healthcare system and the type of research that we can do with either the, um, the advantages of that, the disadvantages with limitations that we have in certain countries, but really just coming together so that we can continuously you know, start using population genetics in clinical practice. So thank you so much. Everybody, as we close out, you'll see a feedback link in your browser when this webinar ends. And we're also going to email it with you uh, to you in the next day or so. So please take a minute to fill it out. Um, if you want to hear more topics like this of population genomics, ways that we're using genomics in clinical practice, what other topics you want to hear about, we would love to be able to plan those installments in the near future. You can also sign up for alerts on our upcoming sessions um, so that you can participate in them live. We also, if you do miss them, we do have it available on our website, phenotips.com. If you hover over the resources tab, speaker series is going to pop up on the drop down menu. All the installments are on there. 
You can also check it out on your podcast app, Spotify, Apple, uh, Google Podcasts, which is now becoming YouTube Music. So just search Phenotip Speaker Series will pop right up. Um, so yeah, stay tuned for our next webinar. Thank you so much for everybody for tuning in and everyone's attention and for the three of you for just being an awesome, awesome panel. Thank you so much. Have a great day, everybody. Bye.